Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Today, we are well aware of the dangers inherent with concussion in high-contact sports, particularly football. But ethically speaking, what does the risk of brain injury arising from these sports mean for society as a whole, and in particular for Christians? Today's guest, Dr. Bennett Omalu, addresses these questions head-on. Dr. Omalu is a nationally recognized authority on chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, and his findings on the topic, as well as the challenges he faced when presenting these findings, were the subject of the 2015 movie, Concussion. In this podcast, Dr. Omalu describes how he discovered CTE during his autopsy of Pittsburgh Steelers Hall of Fame player Mike Webster. He then discusses the risks of permanent brain injury in children who play high-contact sports, and in doing so poses a profound challenge to parents. He also speaks to the ethical implications of watching, or being a fan of such sports, and concludes by addressing whether a person suffering from CTE can be held morally accountable for his or her actions. Good morning, Dr. Omalu. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I was wondering if we could, if you could start off by giving our audience a brief background on your, your education and your professional experience. Well, I'm a physician. I went to medical school in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in Nigeria, in West Africa. Um, then I came to the United States in 1994. I did all my postgraduates here. I'm board certified in five subspecialties of medicine, anatomic pathology, clinical pathology, forensic pathology, neuropathology, and medical management. And I, I hold a master's in business administration from the Pepper School of Business in Carnegie Mellon University. Mm-hmm. Then I hold a master's in public health in epidemiology from the University of Pittsburgh. I'm a certified physician executive. I've, I've performed over 10,000 autopsies, examined even more brain samples, and um, today I'm currently a clinical professor of pathology at the University of California, Davis Medical School. Mm-hmm. I'm also the president of uh, Bennett Omalo Pathology, which is a medical legal consulting firm, which I founded about 10 years ago. I know you've addressed this question before, and I, I, um, I'm thinking particularly of a, an interview you did with Raymond Arroyo a number of years ago on The World Over. But I think it's a great way to introduce you to our audience. How does your Catholic faith influence your work? Well, I do not separate the two. My work is my faith. It's who I am. Um, I practice my faith in my work and my faith in my science. Because as a Christian... I follow Christ, and Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the truth. Christ is the light. 
So I I manifest my faith in everything I do. Um, because my faith is just who I am. Um, the Spirit of God that lives in me, in every in my daily life, I manifest that Spirit, the hopes and aspirations of that Spirit. And, you know, the realization of the hopes of that Spirit, and then evidence of what I don't understand or comprehend in my life. So my faith is my work. My work is my faith. Um, that is who I am. <laughs> Ephesians tells us, chapter 4, that we all are one family, sons and daughters of a mighty God, one love, one spirit, one hope, bound together by the bond of peace. So I see my fellow human beings as myself. Whatever I do to myself, I do to all of us. We have to uphold that common humanity we share together as one family. And one person, no matter what you do, affects all of us. And that has been my trial. That has been my journey. That's a great answer. And it, it actually um, provides a great theme for the rest of our, our interview today. So, so moving forward, um, you are certainly most well-known uh, in the public for your work with uh, for work discovering and work with um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. So I was wondering if you could tell us, uh, what is CTE and how did you discover it? I remember my story or my encounter with CTE began in September of 2002. Mm-hmm. And I think it was September 28. I went to work on a Saturday morning just like everyone else does, I went to work to perform autopsies. And at work, I encountered Mike Webster. I did not grow up in this country. I was a total ignoramus of football. <laughs> I was a buffoon of football. I, I had no clue what football was. But when I encountered Mike Webster, like every other patient of mine, by our fate, we believe that there is life after death. He is the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Elijah. He's not the God of the dead. So when you transit from this world to the heavenly glory, your spirit is alive. So I recognize that, and I treat my patients as life patients, with every dignity. And I speak to them in my heart. So I spoke to Mike Webster. He said, look, something is wrong here. I don't know what it is. But Mike, as a brother of mine in Christ, I shall use my knowledge and education to restore your dignity. I've read and heard so many bad things about you. People are making fun of you. But guide me. Your spirit should guide me to the truth. I can't do this by myself. Going by science, just going by science, I had no reason to perform the autopsy of Mike Webster. We knew why he died. 
And if you ask me today, why did I do his autopsy? I don't know. <laughs> when I opened up his skull, his brain looked normal. I had no reason to save his brain in formalin, which is the chemical we use to fix the brain. His brain looked normal. If you ask me, uh, if you ask me why I fixed his brain, I don't know. In fact, my boss, Dr. Cyril Wecht, had asked me, why are you saving this brain? What are you looking for? I said to him, sir, I don't know what I'm looking for, but something is wrong. CTE was the name I gave or I chose to give the disease I saw in Mike Webster. Mm-hmm. CTE stands for Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy. CTE for short, because the words are <laughs> kind of long. scientific jargon. Okay. <laughs> Hippocrates was one of the first physicians that identified concussions. He called it commotio cerebri. And over the centuries, different doctors from all across the world have published and confirmed that there is no safe violent blow to the human head. Mm-hmm. Every violent blow to the human head can cause brain damage. And when brain damage occurs, it is permanent. A concussion is a permanent injury that stays with you the rest of your life. In the 1800s, doctors also began to observe that in boxers, there is this disease that occurs and progresses in boxers, resembling a dementia, resembling a psychotic disease. And at some point in the late 1800s, early 1900s, a doctor called it the punch drunk syndrome, punch Mm -hmm. drunk syndrome. And in the 1930s, another doctor changed the name to dementia pugilistica. So when I did the Mike Webster autopsy, all we knew then was that, yes, in boxers, they could suffer brain damage, and it was called dementia pugilistica. But there was never a report in football players, and in fact, in other sports. We knew that, yes, sometimes in other athletes, we observe some psychiatric illnesses in them after their retirement. So when I saw the changes in my Webster's brain, I did not know what to call it, but I knew that it was an occupational disease. It was caused by football. So I had to give it a name that was already existing in the literature because of the Dubbert, Dubbert principle, D-A-U-B-E-R-T, the Dubbert principle or Dubbert standard in the court of law in the United States that says that for scientific evidence to be used in the court of law, it has to be a generally accepted principle and it needs to have case precedence. So I gave it, I chose the name chronic traumatic encephalopathy because it was a very generic name that really did not mean anything. 
Because <laughs> I was afraid further down the road, somebody could prove my concepts wrong. So I gave it a generic name so that that would give me a wiggle room to escape if somebody boxed me into a corner. I'll say, oh, after all, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but it still had a very intellectually sophisticated name. and a It good does acronym. sound sophisticated. Yeah, and a good, but it has a good acronym. So essentially what CTE means is just one type of brain damage you may suffer if you suffer blows to your head or suffer any type of brain injury. It does not have to be repetitive. In fact, many more people suffer from CTE due to brain trauma they suffered in motor vehicle accidents. Hmm. Okay, so it does not have to be repetitive. It is just one type of disease. There are so many diseases human beings could suffer following brain injury. It's what we call a syndrome, traumatic encephalopathy syndromes. And it begins with a subconcussion, like when you receive a blow to your head without having any symptoms. You suffer microscopic injuries in your brain. If you play one game of football, you've suffered some subconcussive injuries. That is part of the traumatic encephalopathy syndromes. Then you have concussions. You have the post-concussion syndrome. You have behavioral impairments, mild behavioral impairments. You have mood disorders. You have loss of intelligence and diminishing intellectual capacity, inability to attain high levels of education, inability to engage in complex executive thinking. You begin to develop violent tendencies, impulsive behavior, criminal tendencies. You begin to lose your ability to control your drives. You begin to engage in drug abuse alcoholism, and self-destructive behavior, then your, um, your risk of committing suicide increases tremendously because of depression. So this, aspect, this is a spectrum of behavioral disorders, mood disorders. Then you have the post-traumatic encephalopathy, the post-traumatic epilepsy. Then you have chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Then you could have other dementias, including ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. So CTE is one of the advanced forms of traumatic encephalopathy syndromes. I'm sorry for the scientific jargon. However, what it simply means is, and this was said in 1976, in a scientific journal called Lancet. In an editorial published by the journal, it says that human beings should stop exposing themselves intentionally to the risk of brain damage sustained in contact sports. That accidents do happen. We don't have control over many accidents. But what we have control over is the intentional exposure to high-impact, high-contact sports. The big six are football, ice hockey, mixed martial arts, boxing, wrestling, 
and rugby. And then for children, soccer and lacrosse. So especially children should engage in the non-contact sports, swimming, track and field, basketball, baseball, um, lawn tennis, table tennis, volleyball, badminton, that's a many of them. Right. Okay. Adults are free to do whatever they want to do because they've reached the age of consent. They should exercise their God-given free will, liberty, and freedom as long as it does not pose any danger or threat to the life of another. But as Christians, the parable of the master and his three servants, the master who was going on a trip and he gave his three servants money to invest. As Christians, sons and daughters of the Almighty, eternal God. God has given each and every one of us the gift of life and sent us to the world. Now, the greatest gift of all gifts is the gift of life. What have you done to protect that gift given to you? to multiply it, to improve upon it. Would you rather undermine that gift and self-intentionally destroy the gift of your life? What defines you as a human being is your soul, your intuition, your intellect residing in your brain. Would you then intentionally damage it. Is that what a Christian should do? Especially when it comes to children. The greatest gift of my life is not my own life, but the gift of the life of my child. And I'm willing to sacrifice my own life to protect the life of my child. Would I then take that gift of the life of my child and intentionally expose my child to the risk of brain damage, to undermine my child from attaining his or her God-given talents and gifts. That is not what a Christian parent should do. So again, you see my faith manifesting itself even in the way I interpret and perceive my environment. <laughs> I'd actually like to. There, there, you've, you've, with what you've said, you've raised a lot of questions um, with me. I, I'd like to to pick up on the one with uh, the issue of parents a little bit. Um, what you said just now is is very interesting, rather provocative. Um, but in a, a CNN interview uh, just a few weeks ago, before the Super Bowl, with uh, Christian Amanpour and with uh, Brett Favre, the Hall of Fame quarterback from the uh, Green Bay Packers. Um, you were talking, and, and this is a quote, you said, uh, speaking, to, speaking of parents of young children, you said, quote, there is no justifiable reason whatsoever for any child under 18 to play these games, unquote. And I'm, you were talking about football, but I'm assuming you're um, also including ice hockey and, and boxing and rugby and wrestling, as, as you mentioned earlier here. 
So my question is, um, there will likely be parents of young children listening to this podcast, and they're hearing what you're saying. What's your message to them? What should they do? My message is, let's go back to faith and science. Eleven years before I was born, eleven years, in 1957, I'm not ashamed to give up my age. <laughs> I was born in 1968. In 1957, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is an organization of the best doctors for children in America, they published a paper in the Pennsylvania Medical Society Journal that stated that no child in America that is under the age of 12 should engage in football, wrestling, or boxing. That these games have no place in any school or in any program for children because these games damaged the capacity of children to develop their musculoskeletal system. Then they were not aware of the brain damage caused by these sports. This is 1957. In 2011, the American Academy of Pediatrics, now in conjunction with the Canadian Pediatric Society, with their Canadian counterparts, published another paper that said that doctors should begin to discourage parents and children from participating in sports whereby there is intentional or there are intentional blows to the head where blows to the head are intrinsic to the play, mm -hmm. like boxing, American football. Over the years, papers have been published by the best scientists across the world. If your child wakes up on a Saturday morning and plays a football game, maybe he wakes up at 7 a.m., eats breakfast that you made for him, puts on his helmet, you drive him to the football field, and he plays football for about two or three hours. In that one game of football, he receives about 60 blows to his head in just one game. After that game of football, and you drive your child to the nearby ice cream store, to share some ice cream with you. Your child's brain is no longer what it was at 7 a.m. It suffered some brain damage, which is permanent. After just one season of football, science has shown that your child has suffered permanent brain damage with or without having CTE. Now, going back to science, in 2014 and 2016, some world-class scientists performed 
very good studies whereby they looked at 1.1 million children who have suffered at least one concussion. And they followed them up for 42 years. Look at what they found. That these children who have suffered brain injuries have about a four to six increase four to six times increased risk of committing suicide. That they have an increased risk of dying before the age of 42 through violent means. Hmm. They have a much increased risk of suffering all types of psychiatric illnesses, including major depression. They have a much higher risk of dropping out of college or high school and not attaining high levels of educational attainment like PhD, doctorates, being a doctor, lawyer, or engineer. They are much more likely to engage in impulsive behavior, become drug addicts and alcoholics. They are more likely to be criminals, to engage in improper sexual behaviors. They are more likely to lash out, to have anger control problems. So, let's go back to faith. The Spirit of God resides in your child. So, would you take that child of God and intentionally make him or her to engage in activity that destroys his gift, his or her gift of life. Is that who we are as Christians? The brain of a child is not yet fully developed until about 18 to 25 years old. That is why most ages of consent hover around 18 years old. And the developing brain of your child is more vulnerable to the lasting effects of brain damage. I wouldn't do that to my son. I have a son who is eight years old. His name is Mark. Mark is a very quiet kid, but he loves to read and he loves to use big words. What will I do as a parent to give him the platform and environment to enhance his intellectual gifts? He loves to play basketball too. So what have I done once a day a private coach comes to the house to coach him on the techniques of basketball to help him be the best of himself. Who wakes up in the morning, puts on a helmet, and slams his head repeatedly on the wall? Nobody does that. When we wake up in the morning, some of us will kneel down and pray. Some of us will meditate. Some of us will practice yoga. Some of us will jog will exercise, some of us will read books, some of us will read the Bible. In everything we do, we engage in activities that enhance our humanity, that makes you a better person. Can somebody tell me how intentionally sustaining brain injuries and brain damage makes you a better person? And I'm, I'm not attacking football, honestly, no. Let's not make this about football. Let's not make this about NFL. 
NCAA or Pop Warner. For example, the NFL is a corporation. What do corporations do? Corporations sell products or services to make money, to generate revenues and profits. So I respect the NFL as a corporation, and they have every right to make as much money they want to make. The NFL sells football and sports entertainment. The NFL is not in business to tell you what I'm telling you. The NFL is not in business to protect your child. The NFL is not in business to provide health education. The NFL is not in business to provide health care. The NFL is in business to make money. So let's not make this about the NFL. It's easier to point a finger. This is about you as an individual, as an American, and as a Christian. You need to Think for yourself and make decisions for yourself, decisions that are in line with our Catholic teaching and faith. Even if you're not Catholic with your Christian faith, because we all worship one mighty and almighty eternal God. Did that answer your question? Uh, that answered it very well, but it, it, it just, it, uh, it brings up more. As a follow-up for that, you... you <laughs> You, well, you said, and I was going to ask this anyway, but you but you teed it up very nicely. Um, you've said that this isn't about the NFL or it's not about the NCAA. Uh, it's not about football. It's really about us as individuals. Well, that raises a really important question for me because, to be honest with you, I'm I'm a football fan. I'm I'm a fan of the New England Patriots. Um, grew up in Massachusetts, and they've I've and very much enjoyed watching their success over the last twenty years. But when I hear you. I start to, I start to wonder um, about my own enjoyment of watching this game. Going back to the uh, the CNN interview that I, I mentioned a little while ago, um, th- that interview was aired a few days before uh, the Super Bowl, uh, the 2018 Super Bowl, and, and Christian Amanpour asked you if you were going to watch the game, and your response was, and this is a quote: "Knowing what we know today." We are intentionally causing harm to the lives of others, unquote. So based on that quote and what you've, you've just, how you just answered that last question, um, I enjoy football. Is it ethical for me to watch it knowing that every time, on, well, on every play, someone's brain is being permanently injured? This is not about football. This is about Ourselves as individuals, if you see a fellow human being whose dignity is being robbed of him or her, are you going to speak out to uphold the dignity of mankind? Does this game restore the dignity of the player? That's the question we have to ask. Because if you notice, in the same interview you've been referring to, Brett Father right. said if he had a son, he wouldn't let his son play. <laughs> right. Yep. He said that in the interview. Brett Favre, and not just Brett Favre, many other retired players say the same thing. And there are players who have retired because they were worried about brain injuries. Thank you. So while I wouldn't tell anybody to stop watching, no, I wouldn't do that. But as individuals and as Christians, 
This is a question you have to ask yourself in the quiet of your heart and soul. Should I be engaging in an activity, supporting an activity that robs another human being of his dignity? If you don't agree with me, read papers or reach out to groups that support retired football players and their families. Just like I discovered after the Mike Webster autopsy, these individuals are suffering in silence. The last time I was in a group of football players in Dallas, Texas, I wept. They are all struggling. All of them. So these are questions we have to ask ourselves as Christians. Is this what Christ would do? And again, again, many times you will know it. Our Christian calling is the more difficult route to take. Santella Marcus was a monk in ancient Rome who had visited the city to see what was going on in the city. And he saw masses and masses of people going towards the amphitheater. And he became curious and he joined the crowd to see what was going on. And then when he got in, it was a, he saw two gladiators fighting, you know, to, for one to kill the other. And people were cheering. And at some point, the monk, being who he was, he couldn't stand it anymore. He started yelling, in the name of Christ, stop. In the name of Christ, stop. And he ran out to the stage and actually stopped the two gladiators and separated them. And then the crowd got very agitated and very upset and actually started stoning him. And eventually they stoned him to death. And the fight continued while Telemachus laid by the side dead. Sometime later, I think Emperor, Emperor Honorius, because of Telemachus, eventually banned the gladiator sporting world. And if St. Paul tells us in Ephesians that we all are one spirit, one hope, one joy, one peace, one family of a mighty God. So whatever happens to a football player who is a brother of mine, who shares the spirit of God with me, whatever happens to him happens to me. So, that is why I don't hold back. I speak my truth clearly and quietly. I've tried to watch the Super Bowl. I turn on the TV. And in every play, I see hefty men lining up 
and slamming into one another. And I tried watching in every play what goes through my mind if you watch the movie Concussion mm-hmm. is what happens to their brains at the microscopic level. So would I, like telemarkers, intentionally join the crowd to conform to the traditions and cultures of society? I'll be cheering human beings, damaging their lives. And if you notice, although black people make up, black people like myself make up about 10 to 12% of the population, they are 75% of football players. And many of them come from not so prosperous backgrounds. So the question we have to ask ourselves in the 21st century, has this become a civil rights issue? Are we beginning to exploit a certain segment of society? Is that a Christian thing to do? Even in her book, Why the Caged Birds Sing, by Maya Angelou, she said growing up in the South, in the pre-civil rights era, she noticed that in the high schools for blacks, because in those days the schools were segregated, there were no good laboratories. But the black schools had the best football fields and the best football programs. And blacks were encouraged to play football and were not encouraged to engage in scientific endeavors. Is that a Christian thing to do? Again, my reference point is my faith. So like Telemachus, St. Telemachus, who was Catholic, recognized that the gladiatorial sports were not of God. In this modern era, these are the questions each and every one of us would begin to ask ourselves. Now, if you've heard me, I've not used the word ban. I don't think football should be banned. No. I'd like to ask you a question that may be a bit unfair, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you, you, uh, a little while ago, you were talking about the symptoms um, and the, the results of CTE. And the question I want to ask you about has to do with responsibility for one's actions. And I'm thinking about this in terms of a player who I'm assuming you've heard of. His name is Aaron Hernandez. Um, he was, a, he was a, uh, a football player, a tight end, played for the New England Patriots, played football his entire life, um, had a, let's say, a troubled um, upbringing uh, through his teenage years, college years, uh, into his professional life. He uh, was event. He played for the Patriots for a few seasons, um, and he was convicted of murder, and he was acquitted on another murder charge. Um, but very soon after he was acquitted on the second murder charge, he committed suicide in prison. He hanged himself. And he was 27 years old when he died. And the family, after his death, said that they, you know, they did the testing, the CTE testing and other testing on his brain. And they said it was the, quote, the most severe case they had ever seen of CTE in someone of Aaron's age, unquote. 
And in fact, they said that the, his level would be equivalent to someone who was about 60 years old. So my question is, and again, this may be the unfair part because I recognize that you are a, a medical professional. You're not an ethicist or you know, you're not a theologian or anything. But in your medical opinion, does CTE, particularly to the extent that someone like Aaron Hernandez had it, does that reduce or possibly even absolve a person from legal and or moral responsibility for their actions? Well, thank you for asking that. First, I don't agree with that statement that that was the most advanced case that has been seen in somebody of his age. I thought that was a sensational statement. Okay. I just thought it was sensational. But looking at it from the perspective of our Christian faith. What came to my mind was that of Mary Magdalene, when people wanted to stone her to death. And Jesus Christ scribbled on the ground. I was told that what he was scribbling was, he will look at you, he'll tell you what sin you've committed. And he said, he who is not guilty should cast the first stone. So knowing what we know today, in fact, if I may add to that, I'm also a forensic epidemiologist. People are not aware of this, but epidemiological studies that have been done recently are showing that about 60 to 100% of violent prison inmates in the United States of America have had a history of traumatic brain injury. Really? as children. Hmm. So rather than making this about the individual who has committed these crimes, let us make it about all of us. Knowing what we know today, when somebody is exposed to traumatic brain injury, it increases that person's risk of engaging in criminal and violent behavior. Okay, so rather than purely being judgmental of them, we need to show some empathy. And this should be reflected in our judicial system. And the question we have to ask ourselves, if you look at Aaron Hernandez's life, he had a very difficult childhood. And society made him believe that football was going to be his savior. And he played it with all his might, not realizing that football was not going to be his savior. Rather, football was going to destroy him. So rather than making it about Evan Hernandez, why don't we make it about society, about us? We damaged Evan Hernandez's life. And because whatever we do to one of us, we do to all of us. The consequences of the damage he sustained as a child now crossed over to other people whom he killed. So rather than making it about the individual, which would be easy for all of us, why don't we, which would be easier, why don't we make it about all of us? 
and Aaron Hernandez as one of us, as one of that one family, and those he killed. So these are ethical questions we must begin to address as a society. Yes, if you commit a violent crime and take another life while you're suffering from brain damage, you're responsible for that. You are. That does not absolve you. However, having determined that, the next question is, what should the punishment be? That person, rather than being punished and penalized and kept in a jail all his life or even killed, I don't believe in the death penalty. That person needs some degree of rehabilitation and treatment because he's sick. But traditionally in society, we are more likely to empathize with physical ailments than with psychological and psychiatric ailments. We're typically more comfortable with things we can see than things we cannot see. So Evan Hernandez, too, was a patient who needed help because of the damage he had suffered in the hands of society. So these are 21st century questions, ethical or otherwise. We as a society must begin to address, not just brain trauma. What about lower socioeconomic children in underserved communities who've been exposed to lead, who've suffered brain damage, who've been exposed to toxic injuries of the brain, to malnutrition? And when they become adults, they cannot compete with children with higher socioeconomic levels. What do we do? Do we deny those people health care, access to livable wages? Recognizing that we are one family. Whatever you do to the least of us, you do to me, God. Because each and every one of us is made in the image of God. If I look at you, I see myself and I see God. There's an African saying that the God you see is your neighbor. Because God lives in your neighbor. So yes, that does not absolve him of the act itself. He, he, he committed those crimes. But the question is... Why did he commit those crimes? What happened to him? And what are we going to do about it? Do we look at him as a, as a monster? Or do we look at him as a patient who needs help? Who may need help? Did that answer your question? Answered it very, very well. I'm wondering if you have any uh, final words of wisdom for our audience. In whatever you do, seek the truth. Seek the truth. I was at a conference once talking to executives. Our one top executive stood up and asked me, Bennett, Bennett, all this noise about the truth. Can you tell me what the truth is? Define <laughs> the truth for me. That's what Pilate asked, too. Oh, Pilate asked that, you see? <laughs> And I, I took a deep breath and said a quick prayer. I said, Lord God Almighty, please put the words in my mouth. 
And I said, that is a very brilliant question. Thank you so much. In every circumstance you face, and you need to make a decision, you need to take an action. The question you ask yourself, this thing I'm going to do, does it enhance the humanity of all of us, of all mankind? Or does it enhance of just me? Or the humanity of only a few of us? Or a group of us? If the answer is no, it is not going to enhance the humanity of all of us. It is not the truth. Dr. Omalu, thank you for a very, very interesting and provocative podcast today. Thank, thank you. you, sir. <laughs> thank you. God bless you. <laughs> God bless you, too. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.